Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sin City Stories contains explicit content that may be disturbing to some listeners, including strong language, graphic details, and depictions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is advised. The trial surrounding the murder of casino heir Ted Binion was one of the most sensational cases in Las Vegas history, garnering national attention. But decades before tales of jilted lovers, underground vaults in the desert, and of a man rapidly squandering his wealth on a wild lifestyle, Ted Binion was at the center of another Vegas crime plot. Since its founding on May 15, 1905, Las Vegas has gone from being a small railway stop in the middle of the Mojave Desert to a glittering neon oasis of gambling, shopping, fine dining, and entertainment, welcoming tens of millions of visitors from around the world every year. Through its relatively short history, the city has been witness to over a century's worth of murder, robberies, arson, and mayhem. And that's what we're here to share with you. In collaboration with MayhemInTheDesert.com, this is Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime. The sordid tales behind the stranger-than-fiction history of fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. Benny Binion, the founder and owner of Binion's Horseshoe Casino, was known for being an affable Texan with a reputation for taking care of his family as well as his employees. But despite that friendly demeanor, old man Binion never shed his roots as a notorious Dallas organized crime figure of the 1930s and 40s, during which he oversaw a sprawling network of illegal gambling dens throughout that city. During those days, Binion maintained his position by faithfully following the rule, do your enemies before they can do you. That ethos resulted in numerous deaths during Binion's time at the top of the Dallas organized crime heap. Binion openly admitted to the killing of two men in Dallas. In 1931, Frank Bolding, a local rum runner, entered Binion's backyard where he encountered the gambler sitting on a crate. Bolding charged at Binion with a knife in hand. The quick-reacting Binion tipped his crate over and fell backwards, only to peer back over the crate with gun in hand, firing several shots to bring down his attacker. This deadly scuffle resulted in Benny Binion being given the nickname the Cowboy. Then, in 1936, Binion was facing encroachment on his territory by rival racketeer Ben Frieden. In response, one day in September of that year, Binion approached on foot as his competitor sat unaware in a parked car in a neighborhood under Binion's control. Frieden was cut down by a round from Binion's 45 automatic before he knew what was happening. Binion then pulled out a second pistol and gave himself a flesh wound before throwing that firearm inside Frieden's vehicle. When the police arrived, Binion claimed he'd shot Frieden in self-defense. The local district attorney bought Binion's explanation and he walked without facing any charges. Then there were the other murders Binion never talked about. 
After all, discretion and the ability to keep a secret were essential to long-term success in his sort of enterprise. Among the more brazen crimes in which the cunning gangster allegedly played a hand was a 1949 daylight car bombing that was intended to kill Herbert Noble, a small-time Dallas gambler who'd been feuding with Binion over gambling payoffs. Unfortunately, the explosion took the life of Noble's wife, a crime for which he swore revenge. Noble never did get his vengeance. In August of 1951, as he drove up to his mailbox, a bomb exploded nearby, killing him instantly. In the end, it wasn't Binion's rivals that drove him out of Dallas. Instead, it was the election of reform-oriented, good government officials, including a new district attorney elected in 1946 on an anti-corruption pledge. The final straw came when Binion's chosen candidate for sheriff was defeated in that same election. Ever the expert gambler, the cowboy knew when to fold. He loaded two suitcases with cash and left Dallas for Las Vegas to continue his profession, but with one difference. He'd be in the one place in America where on paper, he'd be a respectable businessman. Benny founded the Horseshoe Casino on Fremont Street in downtown Las Vegas on August 14, 1951. The Horseshoe gained notoriety for its friendliness to gamblers. There were no limits on wagers. The Horseshoe was also known for its down-home atmosphere. Patrons were welcome to wear jeans and button-down shirts rather than the suits and ties expected at the establishments popping up a few miles away along what would eventually become known as the Strip. Though Benny Binion was able to gain legitimacy in a place like Las Vegas, and while he preferred to resolve things above board if possible, old habits die hard. If push came to shove, Benny never hesitated when he believed it necessary to return to the tools of the trade that served him so well back in Dallas. Hitmen, car bombs, and bribery of local officials, all utilized with a ruthless entrepreneurial efficiency. And a sure way to trigger the bad side of Benny Binion was to come after what he cherished most, his family. Like most residents of Las Vegas since its founding, Marvin Weldon Shoemate was not a native of the city. After being born in a town a few miles north of Dallas, at the time when Benny Binion was consolidating control of that city's rackets, Shoemate spent most of his life in Oklahoma. For over a decade, he ran a pool hall in Oklahoma City, facing, by his own admission, hundreds of arrests, mostly for liquor and betting violations, although he claimed he'd never served a day in jail. But in 1965, Shoemate left Oklahoma City and headed west to Las Vegas. And by 1967, the 43-year-old had settled down with his wife and three children in a working-class neighborhood while making his living as a cab driver with the Whittlesey Blue Cab Company. Shoemate told those close to him that he planned to stay on the straight and narrow after leaving Oklahoma behind. But he also couldn't help naturally striking up friendships with other men carrying a criminal past, both at work and at Pappy's Bar, a local watering hole he frequented. There really was a part of him that wanted to go legit, but in the end, Shoemate continued to remain easily enticed by under-the-table or otherwise illicit opportunities to bring in a few extra bucks here and there. And the daily grind of shuttling drunk tourists around town only reinforced his long-held belief that honest work just didn't pay. 
By 1967, Marvin Shoemate had fallen into the orbit of the most famous gambler in town and some of that gambler's toughest enforcers. This included Tom Hanley, head of a local gaming employee union, and Benny Binion's go-to hitman. Shoemate, the former small-time gambler, had gotten so deep that he was even present in late 1965 at the downtown Horseshoe Casino when Hanley and his cohorts were planning the assassination of the head of a local plumber's union. Things could have continued to go well for Shoemate if he'd wanted. He could have kept his day job and brought in cash on the side by doing small jobs for Binion and Hanley. In fact, Shoemate's time at the Horseshoe Casino led to his 22-year-old son Dennis striking up a friendship with the then 24-year-old Ted Binion. Dennis Shoemate and Ted Binion spent their time partying hard and fully embracing the vices offered by the growing city of Las Vegas. As a result of Benny Binion's inability to hold a gambling license due to his criminal history, son Ted, along with his brother, was nominally an owner of the horseshoe, but dad Benny was still the de facto day-to-day -day operator of the downtown casino. This left young Ted Binion free to indulge in women, drugs, and booze while his father took care of business. But Marvin Shoemate overreached. Sometime in late 1967, an idea came to him. It was a scheme that could make him a very wealthy man. He'd use information inadvertently provided by his son to learn Ted Binion's routines. Then Shoemate and some of his friends from the cab company and Pappy's Bar would kidnap the casino heir in order to collect a hefty ransom from old man Binion. One of the four men Shoemate enlisted into the kidnapping plot was Bill Wade. Along with being one of Shoemate's pals from Pappy's, Wade was a dealer at a local casino, and he had an extensive criminal history. When Shoemate told Wade the broad contours of the plan to kidnap the young Binion, the dealer was entranced by the prospect of earning a quick payday that would allow him to leave behind his day job. Shoemate and his co-conspirators refined the kidnapping plot over the course of a few weeks, but as they worked out the finer details, Shoemate came to a cold realization that a crucial change of plans was necessary. The only way to get away with the cash would be to kill Ted Binion after the ransom money was received. Shoemate explained in separate conversations to his cohorts, there's no other way. There was no record of violence in Shoemate's past back in Oklahoma, but the former small-time gambling ring operator was now upping the ante to murder. Shoemate sensed some resistance from Wade regarding the thought of murder. He explained to Wade that if they allowed Ted to live, the young Binion would, in short order, be able to provide the old man with enough information to link Shoemate to the plot via his son's relationship with Ted. Wade told Shoemate that he understood what had to be done, but just because he understood, that didn't mean he agreed. He was no murderer. A thief, an extortionist, yes, but not a murderer. Wade fretted over what to do, and a chill ran through him when he finally came to the conclusion as to the only course of action left. He had to tell Benny Binion about the plot. Bill Wade reached out to a man he called the only honest cop in town, Detective Mike Whitney. Wade had information about a planned kidnapping, but he needed a promise from Whitney. No one else at the police department could be involved in disrupting the plot. Wade told Detective Whitney to relay life-or-death information to one of the most powerful and ruthless casino magnates in Las Vegas. The casino dealer needed Benny Binion to know he'd become aware of chatter regarding a plot to kidnap Binion's son. And Wade also wanted Binion to know that he had the name of the man behind the plot, a cabbie named Marvin Shoemate. 
After taking steps to notify Old Man Binion of the kidnapping-turned-murder plot, Wade cut off contact with Shoemate and tried to continue leading a normal life. He attempted to reassure himself that Benny would have no reason to suspect that he had any involvement in the plot, and if Shoemate tried to say anything like that, it would just be the lies of a desperate man trying to save his own life, right? Wade was relieved when a few days later, Detective Whitney met with him to let him know that Old Man Binion appreciated the tip and that action would soon be taken to stop the kidnapping plot before it could proceed any further. In fact, the old gambler was so grateful that he wanted the detective to deliver $500 cash to Wade, an amount worth roughly $3,700 today. Corruption was rampant among law enforcement officers in mob-controlled 1960s Las Vegas, with the department rotting from the top down. Sheriff Ralph Lamb would later face federal scrutiny for accepting large loans from Benny Binion that were never expected to be repaid. And Detective Whitney appears to have been on Old Man Binion's payroll as well, since he failed to inform any of his superiors about the tip from Wade regarding the Ted Binion kidnapping plot. While Whitney later protested that he did everything he could to foil the kidnapping, it's more likely that upon informing Binion of the plot against his son, the detective received a tidy sum for reward money and then let the ruthless gambler handle the situation as he saw fit. When Marvin Shoemate stopped seeing his old pal Bill Wade hanging around their favorite watering hole on Flamingo Road, he started to have second thoughts about the whole scheme. The notion crept into his head that Wade may have turned informant. The evening of December 2nd, 1967 was a Saturday, which meant that Shoemate had a busy shift of driving people around the city. But he still managed to get off near his normal quitting time of 8 p.m. He dropped his cab off at the taxi depot, and being the creature of habit he was, he headed for the same spot he went every night after work, Pappy's Bar. Shoemate got out of his car, planning to contemplate his next move over several rounds of drinks, but he never made it inside the bar. A man exited a vehicle as Shoemate headed toward the entrance and intercepted the cab driver turned potential kidnapper. It was a familiar face, Tom Hanley. Shoemate smiled and greeted his acquaintance. Hanley said, Hey, we need a little help with some business tonight. Big payoff for you. Shouldn't take long. Let's go. And gestured toward his waiting car. What could Shoemate say other than, Sure, Tom, you know I'm game. Delusion can be a powerful thing, and Martin Shoemate clung to the belief that it was merely a coincidence that Wade had stopped going to the bar after the topic of murdering Ted Binion had been broached, and that now, a few days later, one of the old man's most ruthless trigger men was inviting him for a late-night ride. Shoemate noted two men in the back seat as he approached Tom Hanley's vehicle. One of Hanley's associates, likely Hanley's longtime friend Alphonse Bass, stepped out of the back seat, allowing Shoemate to take a seat in the middle. The car took off down Flamingo Road and headed toward the endless desert surrounding the city. At a certain point during the drive, once the car made its way past the last houses lining Lake Mead Boulevard, past Nellis Road, and into the pitch black, Shoemate could no longer deny what was about to happen. His mind raced. Maybe he could talk his way out of this situation, like he'd done in so many other tough binds back in Oklahoma. Guys, we can work this out, he started, before he was cut off by Tom Hanley. Marvin, just stop. They continued the rest of the drive in silence until the vehicle pulled over in the dirt along the side of the road. Hanley killed the ignition. 
Hanley and his associates, along with Shoemate, exited the vehicle into the frigid winter air. A few hundred yards in the distance stood Sunrise Mountain, a promontory guarding the east end of the Las Vegas Valley. The middle-aged former pool hall operator stood shivering, the silhouettes of Hanley and his trigger men standing against the luminescent glow of the city in the distance. Hanley finally spoke again. Let's go for a walk. Shoemate complied. There was no way out, and he knew it. The hitmen followed Shoemate for a few feet towards one of the trails winding along Sunrise Mountain. About 30 feet from the road, one of the trio told Shoemate, Turn around. Shoemate turned and confronted Tom Handley wielding a shotgun. The cab driver raised a hand in defense. A thunderous boom rang throughout the empty desert as Hanley fired a single round into Shoemate's chest from a distance of about three feet, sending him crumpling to the freezing desert floor. Shoemate laid motionless on the ground, the blast having destroyed his heart and lungs. But Old Man Binion's enforcers were out here on a mission that had to be completed, which is why one of them approached Shoemate's body and fired a single round from a 38 revolver into his head just behind the ear. Then they walked back to their car, got in, and drove back to the city. The murder made front pages of the local papers and police officers fanned out into the desert along Lake Mead Road in search of clues that might lead to the identity of the murderers. This included using metal detectors in an attempt to locate shell casings. It was clear that robbery hadn't been a motive since Shoemate was found with money in his wallet and his car keys still on his person. While the press made glancing references to the murder being associated with a kidnapping plot involving the son of a prominent downtown gambling figure, The police refused to disclose the identity of this mysterious gambling figure, though it quickly became an open secret around town that Benny Binion had employed some of the tactics he learned back in Dallas to defend his family. Bill Wade was aware that his old drinking buddy had been executed on the orders of old man Binion because he was involved in the cover-up of the plot. After the murder, alleged hitman Tom Hanley contacted Wade and told him to bury the murder weapons in the desert. Wade met Hanley and complied with his request. Wade hoped that would be the end of the whole messy and ill-conceived kidnapping plot, but a few days after Marvin Shoemate's brutal murder, Wade received an anonymous call while drinking at Pappy's Bar. He picked up the receiver and heard a voice he didn't recognize. You've got 24 hours to get out of Vegas, or else. Wade left the bar and headed immediately to Las Vegas Police Department headquarters, where he told officers he feared for his life and that he had information that might help them solve the Shoemate murder. Sheriff Ralph Lamb, the close friend of Benny Binion, agreed to lock Wade in a spare cell to protect him from those who threatened to do the casino dealer harm. However, during the course of Wade's three-day stay in protective custody, he was met in his cell by Detective Whitney, the intermediary who had relayed Wade's tip about the kidnapping plot to Benny Binion. Whitney told Wade that he had learned of the threat he'd received at the bar, and he was here to reiterate that there was really no good reason for Wade to remain in Vegas, and also to give him an additional $300 from old man Binion to cover his relocation costs. Wade heeded the detective's advice and asked to be released from protective custody. He promptly fled Las Vegas for a less life-threatening environment. In fact, Wade went about as far as he possibly could, ultimately ending up on the east coast of the United States. 
Detective Whitney, who had evaded scrutiny for his moonlighting on behalf of Benny Binion, was suspended a few weeks after the slaying of Marvin Shoemate, when it became known that he'd been acting as an intermediary between Binion and Wade without telling his superiors. Whitney, a 13-year veteran of the police force, vehemently maintained that he was only trying to bust a kidnapping plot, nothing more and nothing less. His superiors told the same line. Sheriff Ralph Lamb told reporters there was no evidence Marvin Shoemate had even been involved in the kidnapping plot targeting Ted Binion. After a few weeks, Detective Whitney was cleared of wrongdoing and stayed on with the police force. Marvin Shoemate's other associates involved with the kidnapping plot fled Las Vegas by January of 1968. And the official line from the police was that there were no leads in the murder of Marvin Shoemate, but that the killing might have been revenge related to Shoemate's dealings back in Oklahoma City. Sheriff Lamb then told reporters there would be no arrests considered in the immediate future. The Shoemate murder would surface again later in 1968 and result in more murder in the Las Vegas Valley. Tom Hanley was arrested that year for the 1966 killing of plumbing union boss Ralph Alsop, who had been cut down by a hidden gunman lying in wait just after the union boss arrived at his Vegas home and had stepped out of his vehicle. A key witness for the state of Nevada was one of Hanley's most reliable henchmen, Alphonse Bass, who was likely in the car the night Marvin Shoemate was driven out to the desert to be killed. Bass testified not only to Hanley's role in Alsop's murder, but also in the murder of Marvin Shoemate. Hanley's attorneys put on a stellar defense that resulted in Hanley's acquittal of the Alsop murder charge. However, prosecutors had no time to gain more information from Bass about the Shoemate killing. On March 30, 1969, Alphonse Bass arrived at the house of Tom Hanley's sister in central Las Vegas after she called to complain of a home emergency in need of a handyman. Bass prided himself in helping friends fix things around their homes, and he arrived as soon as he was able. Bass had only taken a few steps into the home when he was suddenly grabbed by an assailant and injected with a powerful sleep agent. Once the attacker was certain that Bass was unconscious, he acted quickly to douse Hanley's sister's home in accelerant and lit the place on fire. Though Hanley was incarcerated at the time of the Bass murder, he faced charges for ordering the hits, and, same as in the Alsop case, he was acquitted of murdering his former flunky. The murder of Marvin Shoemate officially remains unresolved. It helped that, outside of the Shoemate family, there was no public outcry demanding justice for the slaying of an unreformed small-time crook. And even if there had been, there was no way to make a case against Shoemate's killers. One of the key witnesses to the events leading up to the murder, Detective Mike Whitney, was on Benny Binion's payroll and maintained the line that Shoemate's name never even came up during his discussions with Binion about the kidnapping plot. And Sheriff Ralph Lamb, the chief law enforcement officer in Las Vegas at the time, wasn't about to devote police resources to solving the shoemate slaying. After all, he knew that any investigation would likely land at the doorstep of his close personal friend and benefactor, Benny Binion. Regardless, Sheriff Lamb likely wouldn't have gone after Binion even if he'd been so inclined. Remember those loans Binion had extended to Sheriff Lamb? Lamb knew that any investigation into Binion would end up being an investigation into his own wrongdoing. In addition to abiding by the rule that he needed to do his enemies before they did him, Binion also knew that when everyone was dirty, no one was guilty. Ted Binion survived the attempt on his life hatched by Marvin Shoemate, but he never outgrew his taste for partying. On September 17, 1998, 
Ted Binion was found dead on the floor of his Las Vegas estate home. His death had originally been ruled an accidental overdose from a combination of drugs, including heroin and Xanax. However, there were suspicions of foul play and a subsequent investigation by police led to the arrest and conviction of his then-girlfriend, Sandy Murphy, and her lover, Rick Tavish. There was controversy surrounding the case, though, and their convictions were overturned on appeal in 2003. During the retrial, both Murphy and Tabish were acquitted on the murder charges, but found guilty of burglary and larceny for their attempt to steal Binion's silver fortune from his vault in Pahrump. Tabish went back to jail and was released on parole on May 18, 2010. Murphy was sentenced to time served and did not return to prison. Ted Binion's death still remains a mystery, with many divided on whether it was an accident, a suicide, or a homicide. To learn more about this Las Vegas true crime story and many others, visit mayheminthedesert.com and get yourself acquainted with the darker side of Sin City's history. Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime is based on material researched and written by Megan and Anthony Smith and is adapted for podcast, edited and narrated by Jeff Walker. Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime is a co-production of Mayhem in the Desert and Walker New Media. Copyright 2024. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.